It's time now for the PDXO WASP podcast, brought to you by the Open Web Application Security Project. The views of the guests do not necessarily represent the views of OWASP, their sponsors, and other stakeholders. Enjoy the show. Our guest today is Dr. Linus Carlson, who's a security specialist for Debrict, a company that was founded in 2018 as a spin-off from a research project at Lund University in Sweden. Dr. Carlson has done some fascinating security research work in the areas of trusted computing, cryptography, software-defined networking, and interconnectivity of embedded systems. I encourage you to read his work on Google Scholar. Today, our discussion focuses on the detection and handling of vulnerabilities in open source software. Dr. Linus Carlson, thank you so much for joining us today from the beautiful country of Sweden. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Tell us about yourself, your background. How did you get into security? Yeah, so um, I currently live here in southern Sweden, a city called Lund, and um, I'm currently working as a security specialist at uh, Debrikt, where I work with uh, security both within our own tool, and uh, but I also work with uh, security training out in uh, external companies to help them develop their security process. But sort of my security interest started essentially when I... Um, first got some interest for computers and I got a a computer from my grandparents when I was six years old and while a lot of my friends were interested in gaming I've always more enjoyed this part of sort of tinkering and understand how things work and this was of course long before I got into security but I think that security really really triggers this kind of interest in me as well. So my actual security interest started after taking an introductory level course at the university. And then I sort of followed up with some courses in cryptography. And then uh, before knowing, I was uh, suddenly pursuing a PhD in computer security. And now I finished my uh, PhD thesis last year and have started working since then. This is probably one of the first guests we had, which I think is great, where a lot of maybe more old timers like myself have gotten into the field and maybe had one or two specialties and then security was suddenly needed and we were were dropped to that. Interesting question I have for you in terms of your education. Is that the way people maybe today should go in terms of security? Do you have a preference? Obviously you went and got your PhD and studied security, particularly in computer science and the mathematics and crypto and all of those things. But would you like to see security type of tracks offered at colleges throughout the world? I don't have a really strong preference. I think it's kind of nice to have people in security from these different backgrounds, I would say. Uh, While I come from the more theoretical background, I know a lot of people come from the more practical end where they have done uh, pen testing and so on. And uh, I think that's an equally good way to approach security. And I think both sort of backgrounds are needed and they they complement each other really good. Uh, Of course, I also like the part where universities sort of start to offer more security tracks within security at the university level, because I I think this can raise the interest in security and make more people interested in it. Yeah. and, And you're probably right in terms of just having diverse backgrounds because the domain is so varied and so broad anyway. Yeah, definitely. So getting into software, is open source software generally more secure than proprietary software? Well, I don't really think there's an easy answer to that. Um, Of course, we have these two sort of big camps when you start to discuss this problem. There, There are these two main ways to approach this question. Some people think that, well, since open source can be audited by anyone, it should be easier to fix problems and find them. And uh, therefore, it should be more secure. 
But of course, you can also have the sort of opposite argument where since the code is open, it's easier to find flaws for attackers as well. So you have these two kind of big camps that you can argue which one of them is correct. From a sort of personal opinion, I don't really think the licensing in itself is the most interesting part to discuss. I think there are a lot of more other aspects that are more important than than just the license. Because if you look at how vulnerabilities arise today, you can see that there are vulnerabilities both in closed source software. I mean, we have all seen the Patch Tuesday from Windows, for example, where you have lots of security patches. And we also have this nice uh, Ripple 20 vulnerabilities now, which are quite recent in a closed source TCP IP stack from, from Trek. Mm-hmm. But of course, we also have vulnerabilities in famous open source libraries like OpenSSL or in Apache Struts, for example. Are there things that, for example, let's say developers are maybe not their own code, but they're looking at integrating open source components into their projects. What are some of the red flags that they should be aware of in terms of security? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. So when, when it comes to integrating open source components, so of course, in general, this is a very nice thing to do because this shortens the development time of products and you, we simply wouldn't be able to create these kind of products we have today without using open source libraries. Of course, there are also things to consider when you start integrating them within your code. I would say some things that are interesting to look at is, for example, to look at how well maintained this product seems to be. I mean, if you have a product that hasn't received any updates in perhaps several years, well, then you may start to question if if somebody actually cares about this product at all. Of course, it's hard to put a sort of hard limit on on the what age that is is good for for to have to sort of draw the limit but one thing that i think is interesting to look at is how they have handled vulnerability reports previously so i've seen some really good examples of this and some really bad and and a bad example would be that you have someone who has found a vulnerability in that project and they have reported it and then perhaps they are met with just silence even though they are asked the maintainer to come with some feedback, it, they are just met with silence and, and no interest at all. And this is obviously a bad way to handle a security report. And a good way would instead be to actually work together with this reporter to find or fix this vulnerability as quick as possible. And I think this is something you can find if you look into the history of, of, of a product, how this has been handled before. So a project that has vulnerabilities, even say CVEs, for example, is not necessarily a bad thing, but it's, as you were saying, it's their behavior or their reaction and how they handle it is is more important. I remember somebody once saying that it's a lot like a credit card. Companies want to see your behavior and how you can handle those things before they can actually make a decision on that. Yeah, I definitely agree. And and just measuring the amount of CVEs or vulnerabilities found in a product is, is a very, I don't think it's a, such an interesting metric because it depends on so many external factors. Perhaps a product doesn't have any CVEs because no one has actually never audited the code. While some products may have been audited extensively and have many many reported vulnerabilities that are, uh, as a sort of result of that, these actions, they are much more safe to use now. I think one challenge for many projects is post-release. Say a team builds and releases a project, then they move on to the next release or perhaps are even done with the project. And usually that code is not monitored. And depending on the frequency of releases, it may not be for a really long time. In your opinion, should teams be obligated to continuously monitor for newly reported vulnerabilities if feasible? And if so, what are some best practices that you've seen 
for providing patches in a timely manner? Yeah, I think you see quite a lot of these problems today. So if you have a poorly updated system, this can lead to exploitable vulnerabilities. And a common reason for this is that you have vulnerable third-party components that are not kept up to date with the latest patches. I mean, some famous examples are, for example, the Equifax breach in 2017, which mm-hmm. uh, was the result of an up- unupdated sort of um, uh, Apache Struts component. And I think sort of if you are obliged to do this, or there are some interesting developments in this area. I mean, if you look at, for example, guidelines from... Uh, FDA for medical devices, they are required to actually keep track of what third-party components you use. And you have the same in the payment processing domain where PCDSS actually says that you're obligated to keep track of the different components. So already today, depending on the domain you're working in, you may already be required to do this. And I think this is for good reasons. Actually, I, if I am some other interesting thing here. So I think one of the most important things to start with is to actually be aware that this is a problem so that you can actually design and implement the process to to handle this as a part of your software development process. It seems like many teams say, okay, we, we released this and now we're going to focus on the, the next release without monitoring. But it feels to me that that's almost like pool monitoring. When something is out, partic- well, it doesn't even have to be open source, but something that's out and to monitor for, say, known vulnerabilities from third-party components is extremely important. And as you said, probably needs to be incorporated into the part of their software development lifecycle. Yeah, and I think a sort of recent development in this area, this uh, this is shown to be very important. And I would say that best practice today is to actually use these kind of software composition analysis tools to continuously monitor the security of your components. And I think we've seen a lot of interest in this area. For example, uh, GitHub has security alerts that uh, have been quite a lot of talk about this during the last year. And of course, also Debrick develops tools for exactly this purpose. So what does the tool do from Debrick? So the tool continuously monitors your third-party components and finds if, if you're using some kind of vulnerable component and it also monitors your sort of transitive dependencies, which is a very common way for vulnerabilities to enter your project, where you have a sort of you have a dependency when, which in itself has a dependency on a vulnerable project. So the bricks can help you with that, and then the tool also supports, for example, licensing, uh, license management, so that you have a compatible licensing for all your dependencies. What's the best approach for a project? Let's say they have a scanner, for example, and they find vulnerabilities, say, in a third-party component. What would you do in terms of maybe contacting the owners of the third-party component? What are some maybe good steps for projects to work, especially in the open source community, to try to fix that problem as soon as possible? Well, First, I would say that the most sort of common issue that we see today is that there are already sort of patched versions of these third-party components. And the problem is more that they aren't really the sort of the products using this component hasn't updated to that patched version. I would say that this is the most common problem today in this area. So I think what you need to focus on first is to actually start using the patched code, which very often already exists. And what about the project teams themselves? If they're releasing something that's open source and somebody reports an issue with them, what do you think is a good 
perhaps process for them to handle that potential vulnerability and that intake? Well, I think there are, of course, a lot of discussions on how to handle this sort of vulnerability disclosure project. I, I don't have a strong opinion if you are supposed to have full disclosure or if you have some partial or sort of a grace period before you, uh, before you actually make the vulnerability public. But I think, of course, a timely response is, of course, very important. And then that you are open and transparent when you have a patch available that describes the situations in which this vulnerability can be exploited so that it's easy for the products that depend on you to make a decision if they are supposed to update or if they are not affected by this issue. Yeah, very good advice. We also know that even tools that are used to update software can be dangerous. For example, in the world of JavaScript, Yarn is probably a better alternative to NPM. If people can do a quick Google, they'll know what we're talking about. What advice do you have for those looking for the right update tools in their products or or should they just build their own? And tooling can be multiple things and you can use them for very, very different purposes. And I think first you need to consider what your what the purpose of your or a tool is. I mean, you can have tool both to handle NPM and Yarn, for example, they are used to uh, to handle your dependencies as a part of the development process. But you also need tools, for example, to push out updates or to detect if you have vulnerabilities in the in the first place. And I think it's more interesting to discuss the sort of design around these the sort of process than the tools themselves. I don't have a strong opinion, for example, on NPM versus Yarn. They both have some options to perform auditing, for example. But I think it's much more important to have a defined process to how to handle the updates. So what do you do when you when you find a vulnerability in your in your third-party components, how do you push the updates and how do you actually make sure that, for example, your customers, if this is a end product for customers, how do you make sure that they get the received, the updated code? What are some of the common vulnerabilities that you're seeing these days? And are they more specific to a language like C or JavaScript or something of that nature, or more, say, related to popular frameworks that are out there? I think it's interesting. So actually, just a week ago, we got this new uh, CWE Top 25 list of most dangerous software weaknesses. It was uh, released on August 20th. So that's a really interesting read, I think, because it sort of lists what uh, the most common classes of vulnerabilities. And I think something that's interesting is to see that if you look at the mistakes made today versus like 20 years ago, the mistakes are still really common. I mean, it's essentially the same mistakes. Of course, the, the context differs. I mean, 20 years ago, perhaps the, the web wasn't as prominent as it is today, of course. And but we still have sort of similar classes of attack. I think the top one for one of the top one is cross-site scripting, for example. And but this is a very general class of attack related to injection, which existed a long time ago that we still see today. And then of course there are also certain challenges that are, that are new and or different today. I mean, one such difference is that today it's much more common to see these third-party components. For example, just installing React today will bring in like thousands of dependencies. And this is a problem that didn't really exist to uh, such a great extent for uh, previously, like uh, 20 years ago, for example. In the world of open source and secure coding, are we getting better these days or are we destined to keep fighting this battle for a very long time? Is it a matter of education, tooling? What's your opinion on that? That's a really good question. 
are we as developers getting better to secure our systems? I would say that, yes, I think we are getting better at securing our systems. However, I would also say that attackers are constantly getting better at attacking them. So mm. this is really a, a cat and mouse game where both parties are sort of pushing each other to get better. We also see a lot of new tools to enhance our the security in systems, such as, for example, I like trusted execution environments or Intel SGX, for example, which I worked a lot in in, in my thesis. These sort of new technologies have forced the attackers to adapt as well. And with every new tool like this, we also introduce new vulnerabilities as well. We briefly talked beforehand about your team using machine learning and AI. What are you trying to accomplish with this and how? And is it possible to eventually perfect this to a point where human interaction is maybe not completely eliminated, but minimalized? So in the company, we use machine learning in sort of several different settings. Our end goal is, of course, to make the data we present to our customers as, as relevant as possible. Some examples of what we use machine learning for is, uh, for example, we have a recommender system that we use to sort of help users to make, to see vulnerabilities that are more relevant to them. So you, it's sort of like, you know, your music recommendations, but for vulnerabilities so that you get vulnerabilities that are as relevant as possible for you. We also use machine learning to adapt our data to make it more relevant in the in the general case and especially to reduce false positives so that the data we present is relevant and actually represents vulnerabilities that are applicable to to the user because uh, false positives can otherwise be annoying when you when you use a tool to assess the security in your product and as a sort of practical example of uh, one one thing we're doing right now is that we use machine learning and natural language processing to sort of find vulnerabilities that are not yet sort of disclosed or marked as a vulnerability. And we use a lot, a lot of, sort of different sources or data sources for this. But for example, we look at issues in GitHub that seem to be security related. Dr. Linus Carlson, thank you so much for joining us today. Do you have any upcoming things that you would like to talk about or promote? Well, so I think we, we just got back like this Tuesday. We had this nice event on uh, at the university. So we were part of the introductory week, week at the university for new students. And we had this capture the flag competition. And I just like to mention it because it's like, I really like this kind of competitions because it gives us an opportunity to sort of raise the security interest in among these uh, new students. And they seem to really enjoy it. So I, uh, I hope this can sort of contribute to an increased security interest in, in the future. On a sort of more... Actually, in the future, so we are currently looking at uh, in, in the company to on, on ways to uh, sort of look into how um, how open source products are maintained because this is something that we I mentioned before was interesting to look at. So we have some work going on in this area as well that we hopefully will be able to talk about more in the future. Well, if you ever get to the Portland area, hopefully this, the pandemic will subside eventually. Always welcome here. And I really do appreciate you spending some time with us today for, for this interview. Thank you for having me. To hear this podcast again, visit anywhere a podcast is played. For more information, go to owasp.org forward slash www forward slash chapter forward slash Portland.